Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, today in our topic, uh, we're, we're talking about my favorite topic um, to talk about in Scripture. And, and you probably heard me say that um, several weeks ago uh, was also my favorite topic because it's still the same exact thing. And so um, last uh, couple of weeks ago, I talked about uh, Jesus Christ. Um, and today, when we talk about the topic of the gospel, uh, I get to talk about the same thing again. Uh, because the gospel isn't just some kind of uh, ethereal thing that, that we throw out there a lot, um, but rather it is a person. It is, um, it is news about somebody. It's not just news. It's not fake news as, we talk, as, as the media talks about all the time now. Um, this is good news for us. And so today, um, as, we, as we come to our series um, that we've been walking through over the last month or so, um, we're coming to what we believe as a church around the gospel. Um, when we say gospel, there's, there's a lot of kind of um, preconceived notions that we might bring in here um, when we hear that term. Uh, for some, it might be, and, and this is even for me, like when I was uh, growing up um, in the South, when you heard gospel, you're thinking uh, music. Like you're thinking, um, it, in the South, you're thinking backwoods, country, folk, um, kind of Sunday night church, gospel music that's played. Um, you can also think of the gospel in terms of, of what churches would say a lot of times as being gospel-centered. Um, a lot of times people would say they're gospel-centered but don't necessarily know what it means to have the gospel. Um, they just like the term gospel-centered, and so they'll, they'll kind of market their, ter- their, their church based on that. Um, other times people would say the gospel is the means to be saved. Um, other times people would say the gospel is something that the church utilizes, but then also utilizes other things in order to be saved. And so there's a lot of preconceived notions that we have around um, this idea of the gospel. Um, and so we, we're going to hit it hard today. Uh, we're going to be unpacking um, what the scripture says the gospel is. Um, and, and my hope for us today, my prayer for us today is regardless of how many times we've heard the gospel, regardless of how many times we've um, read about the gospel, uh, been explained the gospel, even shared the gospel, my prayer for us today is that we would come into this place regardless of background, that we would come into this place and say, with open eyes, with open hearts, with open ears, um, I want to see what Scripture is teaching about the gospel. Not even what Dwayne is saying. Like, if there's, if there's things that I'm pulling out and saying, this is my opinion, this is what I think, I will say that. Um, but when it comes to, to what the Scripture says in gospel, I'm going to stick to that um, as much as possible because I know that that is the only thing that breathes life into our salvation, that breathes life into our relationship with God is via the gospel. And so, um, so I'm excited to talk about it today because I know this is the fuel um, for our lives. This is the fuel for our church. Uh, we would not be a church Um, the people here in this room, as well as the people who are out camping, who are on vacation, who are are gone and away as well um, this weekend. The reason why we are a church centers on this one belief. This one belief. 
if it weren't for the gospel, I don't have a job. If it weren't for the gospel, we're not going to set up sound equipment every single weekend. We're not going to set up Little District for just my son this weekend um, over there as far as the infants and babies. I mean, the amount of time, and I actually was thinking about that analogy earlier, like the amount of time it took us to lay down the floor and to set up the walls and to put up the table and to, to bring out all the toys and the books and to, to have the snacks ready for him and have the water ready for him for just one infant, for one baby, for one toddler. I'll get it there eventually. Um, but for one, I, he's still an infant to me, all right? But anyways, for one toddler over there, we spent several hours setting up and laying the foundation for him to be able to come into a place and enjoy relationship and enjoy practice, and enjoy um, toys and enjoy food and have his diaper changed and to have, like, to have those things happen for him. And when I see the gospel, I see, I see God entering into our history and beginning to set the foundation and beginning to frame up walls and begin to, to provide for us all the blessings that are found in Jesus Christ. He's, he's setting up all of those things regardless of how many people come to it or how many people reject it. Even if it's just one, he sees it as worth it. Absolutely worth it. Because of what the gospel says and what the gospel provides and what it does for us, bringing us out of death and into life. Like the gospel is not just about making bad people good. Like that's not the reality. The reality is we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sins and the gospel was bringing us into life and not just life in this earth, but life abundantly, life eternally in a reconciled relationship with God. The gospel's producing this for us. And so for us to be a church and not preach that good news would then cease to be a church. We would just be a, a, a group of, of people who just come and hang out on a Sunday and, and sing some empty songs if they're not about the gospel and to preach empty messages if it's not about the gospel. Like really, we should just go to the bar and hang out. We should just go to the country club and hang out. Like we should just go to someone's house and hang out and play board games. Like if, if we're not centering on the gospel, the church ceases to be the mission of God as he's advancing his glory all over the earth. Because the primary way in which he wants people to come to know him, to be in relationship with him, and to see him is via the proclamation of the gospel. Sharing the good news and all that that good news is and what it, what it ultimately means to be good news. And so I want to read, as we're walking through our statement of faith as a church, as we're walking through what we believe about these, these big topic um, doctrines within Scripture, we've talked about what we believe about God, what we believe about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we've talked about what we um, believe about the fall and what we believe about mankind and them being created in the image of God. And today we come to this idea of, with last week was bad news, we talked about the sin and the fall and how creation was fractured this week is good news. And so this is our statement of faith around the good news, the gospel. Jesus Christ is the gospel. The good news is revealed in his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. He lived a sinless life to replace our sinful life. Christ paid a wrath-absorbing death to free us from our death-deserving life. 
He rose to eternal life, defeating death and sin in order for us to inherit eternal life. Christ's death is a substitutionary sacrifice to God for our sins. It satisfies the demands of God's holy justice and it appeases his holy wrath. It also demonstrates his, his mysterious love and reveals his amazing grace. There is no other name by which men must be saved by the name of Jesus. So the first thing I want to, like right out of the gate, I've got, I've got six points that I want to show you that are the gospel. Because a lot of times we, you might hear the gospel as just Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. That's one of the, the quickest routes that people go with the gospel. But the gospel is a lot more than just the fact that Jesus died for you. That is a point, and we'll get to that point. But there's a lot more to this. Um, to just begin, the first point I have is the fact that the good news is a person. It is a person. It's, it's not a magazine article. It's not a newspaper ad. It's not good news that we would see as news that comes to us today. The news itself is about a person. The gospel is representing a person himself. Jesus Christ is the gospel. It's ultimately about Jesus, which means by process of elimination, it's not about us. Like the gospel is about Jesus. So, so many times we, we focus on um, God coming to us because of his amount of love for us. Which is part of it. But the reality is, is God is coming to us because of the amount of love that is in him that he wants us to experience and to receive and to enter into life with. And so God's, God's pursuit of us, God the person, Jesus Christ, coming to the earth isn't because he was missing out on his relationship with us, but rather because we are missing out on the relationship with him. He didn't come to earth because we were awesome to burst your bubble. He came to earth because he was awesome. And because he's awesome and because he... The person, the good news is coming to live within us. That makes us what? Awesome. It makes us righteous. It makes us holy. It makes us like him. That's what we get to experience. We get to experience the love of God that comes into us in the person of Jesus Christ. And because we get to receive that, we then get to grow in that so that other people get to then experience the love of Christ. Other people get to see all that he has done in our lives. The gospel in, in its original language literally means um, evangelion, which is a proclamation, a sharing of good news. It's an announcement. It's an announcement proclaiming Jesus is here. Jesus is here. John the Baptist, one of the, the first kind of prophet that we see of New Testament, um, is the one who's coming in. There was 430 years of silence between Old Testament, God speaking to the people, and then John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and the first thing he says is, everybody, everyone, gather in. Something's about to happen, and I don't want you to miss it. Jesus 
is coming. The kingdom of heaven is here. Literally, as Jesus is walking down the road and you've got this backwoods Baptist preacher way out in the wilderness eating nothing but honey and, and, and locusts. Like he, he has a terrible diet, but he's out there in the wilderness and Jesus is walking down the road and John the Baptist looks at him and says, everyone, everyone, look, this is the one I've been telling you about. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. That's good news. Because what we talked about last week was, oh, we're sinners. We're broken. We're fractured images of God. God created us to bear his image. He created us to reflect his glory. He created us to live a life that is glorifying to him is also the best life in order for us to receive the most satisfaction and joy. That design is meant to be perfect and beautiful, the way in which we love each other, the way in which we work, the way in which we raise kids. All of those things are meant to be in God's design for his glory, but in that for our greatest joy and satisfaction. And sin fractures that. Sin breaks it. Sin comes in and now wants you to have arguments and, and, and struggle and battle within your marriages. It wants to have your kids rebel against you. It wants your workplace to create thorns and thistles. Um, like literally, how many of you have coworkers that you can't stand? Like that's because sin is in the world. Have bosses that you just can't deal with? Like that's because sin is in the world. And John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, says he's coming to take away the sins of the world. He's coming to take away that bad news because he's the good news. He's the one who's coming to restore all things back to himself. So the gospel is about a person. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Why do you think Paul starts off with saying, I should remind you? Because we're sinners, right? Yeah, we're saints. But how many times do you forget to pick up the Bible? How many times do you forget the gospel when you're in an argument with your spouse or fiance or boyfriend, girlfriend? Or how many times do we forget the gospel and what it preaches in our lives? How many times when, when we react in a, in a sinful way? I mean, just driving here. I mean, like someone cuts you off in the road, and if you were God, they'd be dead. <laughs> like, like, that's reality. Like, we forget the gospel daily. We forget the good news of what Jesus has come to do. Like, Jesus coming to reconcile us means that he's also reconciling our relationships with others, which means we don't expect anything from them, but rather we want to love and serve and encourage and edify and create peace and harmony amidst our relationships. When we forget that, what does that then mean? By process of elimination, it means we want to be hostile within our relationships. We want people to owe us things. can't believe they didn't text me back. It's been two hours can't believe they didn't wish me happy birthday in the morning. They waited till the evening. Like we just think, whenever we forget the gospel, we think everything's about us. Because we forget that everything's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So Paul says, he's writing to a church in Corinth. In Corinth. He's telling them, I need to remind you of the gospel. Because we're prone to forget. I should remind you. I mean, think about, think about the disciples. They spent three years with Jesus. 
three years with Jesus. And when Jesus is about to ascend and go back to heaven, what does he tell them? I'm going to send you a helper who's going to help you remember all that I taught you. Why? Because they've already forgotten it. They spent three years with Jesus in dialogue, conversations, at times robust dialogue where Jesus is calling them Satan. <laughs> How could you forget? How could you fall asleep when I'm asking you to pray in the garden? Like, like there's so many life lessons that Jesus is teaching them in three years. And yet when Jesus is leaving, he's saying, but I already know you guys are going to forget because you're sinners. So I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the helper to you. And he's going to help you remember all that I've taught you. All that, that has defined who I am, he's going to bring remembrance to you. So Paul's doing the same thing here. Holy Spirit, via Paul, is allowing him to write to this church in Corinth and to tell them, here's the gospel that I've preached to you. It says, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. What Paul's saying there is I'm delivering to you the gospel message. And what I need you to hear is that nothing else matters except for this statement that I'm about to say. I don't need you to figure out right now the, the, the strategy for the way you're going to market the church. I don't need you to figure out right now the structure in which you're going to have leadership within the church. I don't need you right now to figure out what curriculum you're going to teach in a little district. I don't need you to think through any of those things. The thing that is of first importance, the most important thing I will share with you, this takes first priority amongst anything, is this message of the gospel, to which Paul says that I also received. So again, just like I said, I'm not going to give you anything that's of Dwayne's opinion. Paul's saying the same thing. I'm not giving you anything that was of my opinion or out of my own creativity, out of my own fantasy, but rather I'm giving you a message that I also received. And this is the message that Paul says. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Probably one of the most simple exp explanations of the gospel in scripture. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I love the fact that it's two times in that. He says, in accordance with the scriptures, just to verify to them, this isn't coming from me. It's coming from the scriptures. It's coming from what God has already breathed out and inspired and has said, this message is about Jesus. And it's not coming from man. It's coming from me. So for Jesus to come and die for our sins means he first had to come and live among us. That's the second point. The good news is that God came to earth and was born just like you and I were born. Like he didn't just teleport from heaven to earth. Jesus didn't come from, he didn't leave his throne in heaven and come to earth as a 30-year-old man. He didn't do that. And there's specific reasons why he didn't do that. God came to earth through an immaculate conception of the Virgin Mary. 
And it was via the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. This is one of those stories that we probably hear a lot, but we don't think about enough. Like that's a, that's a miraculous thing that had to happen. God comes to earth, but he wants to come to earth in the form of a man, in the form just like us. And there's a reason for that, and we'll get to it. But he comes to earth, and in order for God to be born of a woman, and in order for God to be born and become a man who is not tarnished with the sin that the rest of us experience when we're born into this world, it had to come via a virgin birth. And the reason why is because sin is passed from human to human through the seed of Adam. Through the seed of Adam. What that means is Adam and Eve, when they sinned and broke the, the, the image of God, when, they, when sin came into the world via their rebellion in the garden, that sin was passed down to their kids via the sin of Adam. So regardless of male or female born, they're both taking sin that was represented in Adam. And then from there, basically, I mean, like, I don't know if you guys have ever studied just reproduction, but it takes male and female. And so whatever is going to be produced from that is going to have the sin of Adam being produced into that person. So the only way, the only way that Jesus would be able to be born without sin is if there's a supernatural conception that happens where the Holy Spirit literally takes Jesus and places him inside the womb of a virgin so that when she gives birth to him, the sin that, trans, uh, the sin that passes through from one human to the next is not passed to Jesus. Because it comes via the, sin, the seed of the man. The seed of the man. We see this in Romans 5.12 and Romans 5.17. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Again, it's talking about Adam. Death reigned to all men because of the seed of Adam much more will those who receive the abundance, grace, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better Adam here. Jesus is the better Adam because Adam sinned, sin spread to all. Jesus, his act of righteousness, his sinless life allows sinless um, substitution to be able to be granted to each one of us who believe the gospel. So the good news is the fact that he was born. Because he was born, therefore he also then lives. A lot of times we leave out the life of Jesus, and, and to be honest with you, when we leave out the life of Jesus, that creates all kinds of issues for us when it comes to how we live our lives. How we live our lives. Jesus lived a sinless life to ultimately replace our sinful life. Without the gospel, if I don't see the perfect life of Jesus, what that's going to produce in me is I'm going to have a guilt-driven, I'm going to be a guilt-driven person. Because if I don't see what Jesus did in his life, and if I don't see what his life meant, every perfect 
action, every perfect thought, every perfect word, every perfect obedience, every perfect thing Jesus did. If I don't see that and that that was given to me, I'm therefore going to think that I have to do all those things. That I'm going to have to work to earn God's love. That I'm going to have to work to earn God's acceptance. And this is not the truth. Like, even during the struggle, like, I find it very difficult to rest because I'm not believing that what Jesus did, his life, was enough. If I don't see it as enough, then I'm never going to see my life as being enough for God. So I'm always going to struggle with it. I'm never going to rest. For example, I finished writing the sermon on Friday night. Friday nights are, are meant to be time with family, enjoying life, resting. But because I wasn't 100% satisfied with this sermon, or at least my effort in it, I found myself skipping rest in order to finish writing this sermon. Part of that's because I believe a false lie that in order for God to be pleased with me, I've got to become a better preacher. That in order for the church to validate me, I've got to become a better communicator. And that's just not reality. I don't have to become perfect in order for God to do what God wants to do here. Neither do you. We don't expect perfect members and attenders of the district church in order for the church to be an effective church. The reality is, is that no one in this room is perfect. And that's what makes church beautiful. is because it becomes a safe place for broken people to come and look at the one person who's not broken, Jesus, and find answers, find rest, find satisfaction in him and him alone. Jesus came to live a perfect life in order to please God perfectly and infinitely. And the gospel is that God takes every thought of Jesus. Think about this. God takes every thought of Jesus. He takes every act of righteousness that Jesus made. He takes every response of obedience that Jesus did. He takes every word of edification that Jesus gave to someone else. God takes all of those things that were in Jesus' life that represented him and God imputes it to our identity. He gives it to our identity. Before Christ, before receiving Jesus, your account, if, like, if we just looked at everyone's account and like heaven being a bank and we have an account there, God looks at your account before Jesus and it says debt owed. When we receive Jesus and he deposits all of Jesus' life within us, our account then says debt paid in full. Debt paid in full. Well, what do you owe someone when your debt's paid in full? Nothing. God's demand of righteousness, God's demand of perfection, guess what, guys? You don't have to do anything to earn it. You don't have to do anything to provide that. Because Jesus did all of it for us, he lived a perfect life so that you and I don't have to try and live a perfect life for Jesus. We don't have to walk through life trying to figure out whether or not we're tipping the scales in our favor. Are we doing more good than bad so that God will accept us? No. Those scales don't exist. We don't have to work 
for our salvation because Jesus already did it for us. Jesus on the cross looked up to heaven and said, it's finished. What's finished? Because he hasn't died yet. What's finished is the righteousness that God demands from a person in order to be in relationship with him. What Jesus said that it's finished, what that means is that Jesus is living out what righteousness demands was completely satisfied in God's eyes. When the father, like for example, like if you have rules in your household, like God has rules in his kingdom. Jesus met every single one perfectly. Perfectly. And so Jesus said, it's, it's done. I can check it off my list. It's finished. I've lived perfectly without sin. When we accept the gospel, the good news that life of Jesus is deposited to our account. And we get to receive his perfection. And therefore, we get to rest. We get to rest, guys. Like, that's one of the biggest things. Like, I think this is probably one of the biggest struggles that we have on a daily basis. The crazy thing about religion, and I'm talking about religion at large, what religion teaches apart from a relationship with Christ, is let me earn what's freely given. Like, do you, do you see how insane that is? Let me earn what God already just freely gives. So God says, you know what? Jesus has earned the perfect way to serve your neighbor. I'm going to give that to you. That's awesome, God. Give it to me. But I'm also going to add to that because I don't think it's enough. I don't think Jesus loved his neighbor perfectly, so I'm going to add more to it because I feel, for whatever reason, and I really don't know why I feel this way, but I think I need to add more to it, God. We're dumb when we think that way. It's stupid. It's okay to say it's stupid because there's times in Scripture where Paul calls things stupid. Like the Galatians, for example, were so tied up in adding works to the gospel that when Paul writes them the letter, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? What that means is that there's been other people come into the church in Galatia and said, oh, you've got an incomplete gospel. You need to add these other things to it because there needs to be works. You need to earn it so that God will then give it to you. And what Paul is saying to them is um, before the law was given, which Moses brought the law into to place, before the law was given, 500 years before that, Abraham was justified by faith. There was no law at that time for them to follow. So how was Abraham considered righteous in God's eyes? He was considered righteous in God's eyes only because he believed God. He trusted him at his word. God said, I'm going to provide everything for you. Abraham said, works for me. That's faith. That's righteousness. So when God looks at us, he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus has provided everything for you. 
and I'm going to grant that to you. I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to deposit that in your account. Our only response to that should be, works for me. Are we saved by works? Yes. Not mine. Jesus's. We're saved by every thought Jesus had. We're saved by every action Jesus made. We're saved by every letter Jesus wrote. We're saved by every thought, word, deed, anything and everything that Jesus did. We are saved by it because God is granting it to our, our account. We don't earn it. We don't provide anything in that. The good news is his life. But then because our lives aren't good news, they're the bad news that we talked about last week, death has to be paid. The good news is that Jesus died as well. He died a wrath-absorbing death to free us from a death-deserving life. Christ's death is substitutionary sacrifice to God for our sins. It satisfies the demands of God's holy justice and appeases his holy wrath. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Again, Jesus knew no sin. Jesus never committed a sin. But Jesus became sin on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we call the great exchange. We represent sin. Jesus represents righteousness. Jesus goes to the cross and says, I'm going to become what you are so that you can become what I am. You are sinners. The wages of sin, Romans 3.23, is death. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to die in your place so that you can become righteousness. If sin leads to death, righteousness leads to life. Jesus wants us to have life. John 10, 10, I came that they might have life and life abundantly. So the gospel is the fact that he goes to the cross and that he dies on it. So for God, to be, to, for God to remain a truth teller, a holy and just judge, he can't sweep sin under the rug. There is no, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it in heaven. Like how many times, like, like, like for real, just think about your friendships that you have. Whenever one of your friends mess up, they don't text you back on time, they, they show up late to your house for dinner, like they, or, or they say something bad about you behind your back. Like how many times do you in that moment say, hey, it's okay, don't worry about it? It doesn't work that way with God. God can't sweep sin under the rug as some type of forgiveness. He can't do that. To sweep sin under the rug means that God tolerates sin and allows it to continue to reign alongside the reign of Jesus. And last time I checked, in Scripture, there's only one throne. There can't be two. You cannot have the reign of sin and the reign of Jesus simultaneously. Sin has to be dealt with for God to remain God. And the way that he deals with it is death. He puts it to death. And the way in which he puts it to death is Jesus going to the cross and absorbing the wrath of God. I guess, I don't know if you've, like, 
How many times have you heard, God hates the sin but loves the sinner? How many times have you all heard that before? It's a great saying. And I get what they're trying to say by it. That God loves the sinner in his pursuit of the sinner. And for that, I would say yes and amen. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Who's the world represent? Sinners. That he sent his son Jesus. But the reality is he loves the world and he's able to love the world because Jesus went to the cross and absorbed his wrath. Without Jesus absorbing the wrath of God, guess how God responds to sinners? He abhors them, it says in the Psalms. If you don't know what the word abhor means, hate. God hates sinner because you cannot separate sin from sinner. Like, I, 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 don't, I don't lie because every once in a while I'm just a liar. I lie because I'm a liar. People commit adultery because they're adulterers. People steal because they're thieves. It's not the act leads to the identity, but it's the identity that produces the act. We sin because by identity we are sinners. And by identity, if you're a sinner, God's wrath is directed straight at you because he abhors sin. But because Jesus goes to the cross... God takes his wrath and he exchanges it over and he points it at Jesus and he says, I'm going to pour out all of my hatred that I have on sinners. I'm going to pour it out on Jesus because Jesus becomes our sin. Jesus then takes the weight, the crushing weight of God's hatred towards sin and he bears it on the cross. So that when God looks at Jesus when he's baptized and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You know what that means? That means there's no one else that I esteem higher than this guy right here being baptized. This Jesus Christ, my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Not just pleased, well pleased means there's no one greater that have my affections than this guy right here. No one greater that will rob me or distract me from my intentionality and relationship with this guy right here, Jesus Christ. I love him. He has my heart. When Jesus goes to the cross and dies on it and absorbs the wrath, the hatred of God towards us, God then takes that affection towards Jesus. When Jesus gives us his righteousness, God now looks at us as he looked at Jesus when he was being baptized. And he says, my affections are for you. My heart is for you. My love is for you. My acceptance is for you. Everything that I see in Jesus, I now see in you. And I want you. I desire you. I want you in relationship with me because of God's, because of Jesus' righteousness. This is the great exchange that we see by sending his son Jesus to the world to become sin. He had to then crush him because sin had to be put to death. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53. One of just the 
most crushing views of what Jesus had to become in order for our sin to be paid. It says this in Isaiah 53, picking it up in verse 2. Is this going to be up there? I don't know if this one. Yes, it is. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Guess what? Jesus wasn't attractive. Jesus took the form of a servant, took the form of a lowly human being. Like he literally left the throne of heaven to be born in a barn. Because he had to ultimately take and represent what we as broken sinners represent, which is the lowly of the low. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. I mean, it's like, not only was he not attracted, but it was like, like, I mean, it was like brutal to look at. Where men hide their faces and he was despised and and we esteemed him not. Nothing of Jesus' earthly form was something to look at him and say, that's my king. Let's place him on the throne of our, of our lives because he had to come and ultimately pay the price of who we represent. Verse four, surely he was born, he has borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. And with his wounds, we are what? Healed. We wore every, like, do y'all feel peace every single day? No, you don't. The reason why is because we're still battling with our own hearts and with our own minds that we got to earn something in order for God to accept us. Ultimate peace is knowing that God accepts you regardless of what you do because Christ paid for it on the cross. And that there's nothing that you have to do in order to accept God as far as any type of act of righteousness or goodness. You don't have to have a certain amount of money in the bank. You don't have to clean yourself up before God would say, yeah, come on into my body. Come on into my church. We war, we don't have peace because we still think God looks at us conditionally rather than unconditionally. And with his wounds, we are healed. A lot of times we don't feel healed because we're still trying to appease the wrath of God by our own goodness. If I lie to somebody, if I try to solve that lie by then going and telling two truths, that's not going to heal me. That's not going to take away the fact that I lied. The only thing that takes away the fact that I lied is when I take it to the cross and God crucifies it in Jesus and Jesus pays the penalty for it. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Last week we talked about bad news. There it is again. We are the bad news. All we like sheep have gone astray. I don't know the last time that you've tried to like gather sheep, but sheep are dumb. They don't just follow in line with what you say. It takes work in order to gather them in because they want to just run away and go wherever they want. We've turned everyone to his own way. We've walked in our own way. Proverbs says that there's a way that seems right to a man and it leads to destruction. 
It leads to death. There's ways in which we think look good, we think are right, we think we should believe, and it's still leading to our death. Still leading to our death. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened his mouth not like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Basically, all that is saying there is that Jesus was represented as the rest of the sinners around him, although he himself was not a sinner. Yet it was the will of the Lord to what? Crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Have you ever felt guilty? Jesus took your guilt and placed it on his soul in order for him to, to wear that and to, to bear that weight. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in, the, in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. You see that great exchange there again. He will make the many to become righteous because he is taking our iniquities. He says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The fact that Jesus bore the weight of many in order for them to come to righteousness doesn't just end there. It then says that he goes on to, to be an intercessor for us. He's preaching to God every single day, I saved that one. I saved that one too. I saved that one. God, don't forget them. I saved them. They're my people. You can hear that in, in John 17 in the language that Jesus uses when he's praying to the Father. He says, the Father, all that you've given me, I have saved them. I've provided a way for them. They had no way. I provided the way. I'm the way and the truth and the life. John 14, 6. Jesus does this by going to the cross and laying his life down. If you try to, how many of you like good detective work? Just investigative work. Like anybody in here like CSI type shows, law and order type shows? If any of them were to go to the crime scene of the cross and try to figure out who's responsible, they're going to get extremely frustrated. Because there's a lot of parties involved here. You've got the Jews who Paul and Peter in their first sermons that they're delivering. Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified. I mean, that's a very secret sensitive sermon, right? That'd be like me just coming up here today and being like, hey guys, guess what? I'm going to preach today on Jesus and every single one of you murdered him. 
that'll really draw a crowd, right? This Jesus whom you crucified. So there's truth that there were Jews that murdered Jesus on the cross. But then when you hear Jesus' own words, Jesus says, no man took my life, I laid my life down. So then you have Jesus saying, oh, I, I went to the cross willingly. They didn't kill me. I went to the cross and I laid my life down in order to be a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And then you have God saying, no, I crushed him. I killed Jesus. Who's responsible? Every single one of those parties are responsible. We're responsible because our sins murdered Jesus. Every single one of us in this room, we murdered Jesus. Every act of sin, every thought of sin, every word of sin is nailing him to the cross. We're responsible for that. But at the same time, Jesus says, yeah, I knew that going into it. When I left heaven to enter into the world, I knew that every sin was going to nail me to that cross. Jesus ultimately was born so that he could die. Jesus said, I came like when you look at the Old Testament and you look at the sacrificial system, all that's a picture, a painting of what Jesus was ultimately going to come and do. Daily. I mean, aren't you glad that we don't have to do that anymore because of Jesus' sacrifice? You don't have to go to church every single day, bringing a lamb, walking across 465, bringing it to the church, say, hey, brother, can you, can you slaughter this lamb, spread its blood over my soul in order so that I can be forgiven? <laughs> I'm glad. I don't know how to dispose of just dead lambs everywhere. This is getting weird. But anyways, like I'm glad I don't have to do that. Because Jesus, when he comes into the scene, he comes and he says, I'm once and for all going to put the sacrificial system to dead because I'm putting myself to dead, to death, in order so that the wrath of God towards sin will be appeased. God will finally be pleased with this. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, um, I'm not going to read through the whole thing, but it says that his sacrifice was a propitiation for us. There's a two-part act involved in propitiation, because that's a weird word. The first one is that it involves the appeasing of the wrath of God, but then simultaneously it's also being reconciled to him. By Christ's Death on the cross, the wrath of God towards us is completely appeased and done away with. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God will never look at you regardless of what you do or don't do and say, I'm displeased. That'll never happen again. It's not happening right now. Any guilt or shame that you feel is just being projected on yourself. You're doing that to yourself. God's not doing that. There's healthy conviction. There's the Holy Spirit who convicts us, but it's not condemning and it's not damning. The Holy Spirit's not looking at us saying, well, you do that one more time, you're going to hell. That's not happening. The Holy Spirit's looking at us and saying, Jesus already paid for that sin. And when you choose to engage in that sin again, you're missing out on grace. You're missing out on peace. You're missing out on love. You're missing out on all that God has for you. You're missing out on the joy that is already purchased for you when you choose sin. You're robbing yourself. 
So his, every time we feel convicted from the Holy Spirit, it's an, invi- it's an invitation to run back to God and to get back into that place of safety and rest and rescue. Stop beating yourselves up. Stop condemning yourselves that you're not good enough, that you don't measure up, that you're not perfect. In God's eyes, through Christ, because of what he did in his substitutionary death, because of what he did, you are righteous. You're a child of his. This is what Romans 8, Romans 8 is one of the most beautiful chapters to read because it says in there, not only are you justified in God's eyes, which is the picture of a courtroom. How many of you love law? Like I said, CSI, law and order, all those things. This is the picture of a courtroom where you've got God as the judge and Christ comes into the courtroom and he's looking at us as we're over on the defense side of it. We're sitting there trying to come up with a case for ourselves and Jesus comes in and says, I'm not prosecuting them. I'm taking the fall for them. And God looks at Jesus and says, yeah, that appeases the court. And he bangs the gavel down and he looks at us and he says, you're pardoned. You're pardoned. Pardon does not mean that we've never sinned. It doesn't mean we're innocent. It means we're forgiven of our sins. We're pardoned and we're free to go. We're free to walk out of that courtroom without any charges against us because Jesus took the charges for us. And then the beauty is when we walk out of that courtroom, we don't have to now figure out, okay, how can I never do that again? We don't have to walk out of it in fear that I have a probation officer that if I screw that up, that I'm going to have to then go back and try to earn it again. We don't have to worry about that. Because when we're pardoned from the courtroom, the judge himself also gets up and says, oh, but wait, you're going home with me. I'm adopting you as well. I'm adopting you as my child. And in my house, there is no condemnation towards you. You will never be in the courtroom again because when I bang the gavel down, this is once and for all. You are pardoned. You are now a child of mine. Come into my family. All that is mine is yours. And I would love to get an inheritance right now as far as what that means, but that's literally like the next three weeks that we're going to be talking about. What does it mean to be a child of his? What is man's response? What is the woman's response to God pardoning us and then adopting us into his family? That's next week. The week after that is inheritance. What What do we get? If we are now the children of God, And Jesus receives inheritance. And what Jesus also says is that the inheritance that Jesus receives, we get to receive. In Romans 8, it says we are co-heirs with Christ. An heir means you receive something. What do we get to receive? We'll talk about that in two weeks. And you don't want to miss that. Because that's good stuff. That good news continues on from there. The good news is also his resurrection. He rose to eternal life, defeating death and sin in order for us to inherit eternal life with assurance. Guys, it's not good enough just for Jesus to die on the cross. When we say Jesus died for our sins, don't leave it there. That's still an incomplete gospel. 
him resurrecting is what Christianity hinges upon. Because there's a lot of people who die for people, right? Go to the cemetery, you'll see vets who have died for us so that we could have freedom here in America. How many of you would, would die for your family, would die for your friends? That's awesome, but guess what? That doesn't bring them back to life. It doesn't bring you back to life. What brings us back to life is the fact that not only did Jesus conquer death, he came back to life, which gives us an assurance that the gospel, the good news for us, when he says, I give you life and life abundantly, that means when you enter into death, it's not over. You're going to then resurrect, just like Jesus resurrected to a glorified state, a glorified body. You're going to resurrect into that and rule and reign with Jesus, alongside Jesus, for the rest of eternity. Is that good news? Absolutely. What other alternative would you want? What else? I mean, like, I love the fact that Top Golf is coming into Indianapolis, but, like, I don't want to just play Top Golf for the rest of my life. I want more than that. I want more than what this world has to offer. And what's more than this world has to offer is when Jesus looks at us and says, Hey guys, um, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to die for you. But guess what? When I resurrect, I'm going to resurrect to a state of glory that I'm also going to give you. And in that state of glory, that glorified body that you're going to receive allows you to be able to rule and reign with me for the rest of eternity. That's going to be fun. That's exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Because my body right now is breaking down. I'm looking forward to that glorified body. That's part of our inheritance, so I'm not going to go into that either. The resurrection is meant to be an assurance for us. That's what you need to know. It's an assurance for us because it's what we get to look at and say, God was faithful in what he said he would do. He was faithful in what he said he would do. For some of you say, well, resurrections are hard to believe. I don't know that I can believe that Jesus resurrected from the grave. How can I believe it? I wasn't there. I didn't see it. Was any of you there to see George Washington be our first president? How do we know that happened? We believe it because we read books that write about it. Guess what this is? This is a book written by eyewitness testimonies that Jesus rose from the grave. That not only did he appear to the 12 disciples, but he appeared to over 500 people. That he spent 40 days eating and sleeping along with the other disciples around him before he ascended back to heaven. We believe it because they wrote it down. Just like people wrote down news that we believe in, in our history. There's no other book out there of historical value that has greater assurance of its truth than the Bible when it comes to copies written about it. When it comes to exterior or external truths that also affirm it, 
I mean, you go to the writings of Plato and Socrates, they don't even come close to the amount of evidence that is out there that come around the Bible. But yet we believe those things to be true. The only reason why we don't believe the resurrection to be true is because we have not been awakened to see the truth of what it is. So we got to plead, just like the disciples forgot what Jesus taught them in those three years and they needed the helper to come and bring them remembrance. We need the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and our hearts and our minds and to awaken us to remember and see what Jesus has done for us so that we can look at it, so that we can look at the evidence that's out there, so that we can read it and we can say, yeah, I see it. He did do that for me. He did live. He did die. He did resurrect. He is my Savior. He is the only way in which I can be in a relationship with God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for awakening me to see that. And thank you, Jesus, for doing what you've done. And thank you, Father, for sending your Son to reconcile me back in relationship with you. That's the only way it's going to happen. It doesn't matter how many Sundays you come to church. It doesn't matter how many times you read the Bible. It doesn't matter how often you pray. None of that will earn salvation for you except for simply Jesus, you seeing him and saying, Jesus, you are, you are my Savior. You are my Lord. Thank you for your love and your sacrifice on the cross to take my sins. And thank you for your resurrection that guarantees for me the fact that I will also be resurrected to an eternal life with you. Thank you, Jesus. I believe you. I believe you are who you say you are. That's all that has to happen for us to be saved. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you this morning and we thank you for this good news. Amidst a world of just bad news all around us, God, it's refreshing to know that you are actively in pursuit of fixing and solving and restoring all the brokenness around us. You are actively involved in the reconciliation of sinners to you so that we might become saints, so we might become children of God. And Father, I mean, even in a, in a small room like this, it's absolutely possible for one of us to, multiple ones, to, to, to not see you, to have known about you, but not love you and be in relationship with you. And so, God, the only, way, the only way that we can come into that relationship is just by believing Jesus. He is who he says he is, and he's done what he says he's done. God, would you awaken that in the hearts of us today? Let that change us. Let that transform and mold us to become more and more like your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you for your gospel. and thank you for your good news. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We worship him. For it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. 
Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at